All right, Mark chapter 2. I gave you plenty of time to find it. I think it's page 837. If you're using one of the black chair Bibles, if you're using one of these little black scripture journals, it's on um, page 12. Mark chapter 2, and we'll look at the first 12 verses. And when he, that's um, Jesus, when he returned to Capernaum, after some days it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus perceived in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Thank you, you could be seated. Before we pray, I wanted to um, share a quote with you from um, Charles Spurgeon. It's um, one of my favorite quotes from Spurgeon. And the quote is, um, is this. Spurgeon said, when I thought God was hard, I found it easy to sin. Now pause and just think about that. He says, when I thought God was hard, a hard person, difficult. He said, I found it easy for me to sin. But when I found God so kind, so good, so overflowing with compassion, he says, I smote against my breast to think that I could ever have rebelled against the one who loved me so and, get, and sought my good. And so it's, it's to those ends that I want to pray and it's to those ends that I want to press this narrative into your hearts that God has inspired his word to reveal himself to us, his nature and his character. And Jesus is God on this earth. If you've ever wondered, what is God like? What's he, is, he, is he hard? Is he soft? Is he firm? Is he, what, what, what's, he, what's he really like? Like, we don't have to guess at that. Like, what we get to do is we get to peer at his heart through the scriptures. We get to peer into his interactions with other humans in, in the Bible. And so let's pray um, to those ends. Lord, my prayer that as this, as this text gives evidence to your goodness and to Jesus' compassion, that we would believe that, that we would see the willingness of a God to meet our needs, even our greatest needs, and to what lengths he's gone to meet those needs. And so in this place and in this time, may we see our need and your sufficiency. May we see your compassion. May we see your graciousness in and through this story. We're thankful for your word. In your name we pray, amen. Um, so here's, a, here's the main point of, of, of the text and the main point of the sermon as well. And it's this, that Jesus has authority to meet our greatest need, to forgive us of the sins that we have committed against him. And by faith, we receive forgiveness, restoration, and renewal. Now, if you scan that QR code, you'll see a, a folder that says sermon notes in it, but in it is no sermon notes. I don't know what's wrong with me today. I mean, I, felt, I feel very prepared to preach, just like the other things are, are somewhat lacking, but I'll put them up um, this week if you, if you need those um, for this week. But, but all the notes will be on the screen and on the screen alone. But authority is, um, is what Jesus has been covering. It's what Mark, I guess I should say, has been covering in the life of Jesus is this issue of authority. And what we see today is we see like the extent of Jesus's authority. 
And Jesus will declare at the end of his life, all authority has been given to me. And here we see really the extent of that. And then what does Jesus do with authority? We talked about that a few weeks ago. We talked about like, like oftentimes it reveals someone's character, what they do um, with authority. That probably all of us have known some people that were entrusted with some amount of authority and immediately went to their heads, right? They, they powered up on people or they, they, they pushed themselves or, or their authority around or they you know, made you feel small because now they were big or you know, oftentimes we see it in other places, right? We see other people that receive authority, but, but look at what Jesus does with his authority. He heals and he casts out diseases and he, he helps and he teaches and he instructs. Now let's get into the text, all right? We'll start in chapter two, verse one, and we'll just kind of walk through the text and then we'll apply this text to our own hearts and lives. And so what we see um, here at first, it says that Jesus has returned to Capernaum. And so this is the city where Jesus has set up kind of his base. This is the place where he taught. This is the place where he called uh, the four disciples that he currently has. I mean, he'll have a total of 12, but right now he just has four disciples that are with him and he called them in and around Capernaum. And notice what uh, Mark says here. Mark refers to Capernaum as, as it's reported that he was at home. Now, Jesus didn't own a, a house. He didn't really own a home. And, and sometimes because of that, we, we will say that like Jesus was homeless. But what we mean by that wasn't that Jesus was homeless, not that he was like, like a super uh, a needy, or we may not say that he was destitute or, or, or a word like that. What we mean by when, um, when we say Jesus was homeless is like he didn't, uh, he didn't own a home. Like he had this place that he stayed there. It wasn't his. I mean, we presume this house that he's referring to, that Mark's referring to, is probably Simon and Andrew's home, the same home where Jesus healed Simon's mother-in-law, the home that's like a stone's throw across from the synagogue in Capernaum. But Jesus is there, and Jesus is doing what Jesus does. I mean, Jesus has been out in Galilee preaching and cleansing people of unclean spirits and healing He's going from kind of village to village and now he's kind of come home now. And now he's just kind of continuing that ministry in Capernaum. And so he's begun to teach there. And as Jesus teaches there, um, he draws a crowd. Jesus has become very popular. We saw that a few weeks ago at the end of the chapter one, how the people you know, have come far and wide to hear Jesus. All of the, the city, uh, Mark said, was at the doorstep and now Jesus is back. He's been gone for a couple of days and he's back and the word has spread about him. And so people have come. Verse number two, there were so many gathered together that there was no more room not even at the door. And so they're, they're lined up all around this home. They're out in front of the door. They're probably looking into the windows. They're all around. I mean, Jesus, if he would have come to your PCG, that's our community groups that meet in homes, Jesus would have blown it up, right? Yeah, there were people everywhere stacked on top of each other. And if you've ever been to some of our PCGs, you felt like that, right? But not quite to the degree that, that Jesus is doing here. And so he's blown up this PCG, if you will. He's blown up Simon and Andrew's house. And then they came, Verse number three, bringing to him a, a paralytic. So someone who is, who's paralyzed to some degree, probably paralyzed, probably from the waist down would probably be the picture here. And he says, and when they could not get near him because of the crowd, notice they, they removed the roof above him. Now, now talk about uh, an interruption, right? Imagine you're in the, in the room with Jesus, in the living room, and Jesus is standing there teaching, and then all of a sudden you have uh, this kind of interruption. I mean, over the years, like we've had um, a few interruptions as I've been preaching, like as a preacher, like you wanna somewhat be prepared for, for interruptions um, in the room. I mean, we've never had an interruption to this degree. Like I might have just caused the biggest interruption we ever had coming up to the pulpit and not having my mic on, but, but when we used to meet um, years ago, we say that now, years ago, um, in our first phase, we met in a, in a factory and there like it was concrete floors and so people felt more free to bring drinks and you can do that here. You can bring coffee and stuff into, into this space. Just don't spill them. People will say, hey, can I bring this coffee in? I say, yeah, you can, just don't spill it in here. But there was a, a couple that would sit on the front row and occasionally, um, maybe like once a month, uh, the wife would kick over the husband's coffee and there we were like much closer. It was like on top of each other. And I would see it happening and I would just like try to stay focused, try to preach. And I would just think like, just leave it. Just, it's, it's okay, we'll get it later. Just like, but no, like he would get up and you know, feel like he needs to clean up his mess and he'd start mopping, you know, while I'm preaching. And so you have interruptions like that. 
I was thinking back, um, there was a time when I was preaching in Haiti um, several years ago, and we were inside this building that we built, and on on Tuesdays, they had a a women's Bible study, and they would pack all these women into this half-built building, and so, like, people had heard, like, they'd asked me to speak, and for whatever reason, you know, like, like, word had spread, like, this guy from America's preaching, so maybe they just wanted to come hear my my dialect, hear my accent, you know, my, my Kentucky English, but nevertheless, like, the room was packed out. There was, like, zero movement that day, and I'm teaching and preaching, and this lady stands up, screams, throws up, and passes out. Like you talk about interruption, right? I'm trying to uh, stay focused on, and I got a translator with me and my friend Tony St. Louis was translating with me, but my, my friend Charles was sitting there like on the front row. And I remember I made eye contact with Charles and Charles was just like, <laughs> like, like it's no big deal, just keep going, you know? Like that, that was an interruption. And I was like, okay, you know, I was, I was thinking about an unclean spirit. I didn't know what had happened, but he acted like it just was another Tuesday in the women's Bible study, I don't know. But here, this is some more interruption. Jesus is in the living room, he's, he's teaching, and all of a sudden, could you imagine, it probably started off with a, you know, a little bit of dust falling from the ceiling, a little bit of noise from the roof, and then the next thing you know, they're, like they're, they're ripping the ceiling, uh, the roof apart. Now, homes in this time and in this place would have been a lot actually like homes in Haiti. For those of you that have been there with me, they were in block homes, probably built out of some sort of brick, covered over by stucco, and the roofs would have been flat roofs, not pitched roofs like ours. And then those roofs, on those roofs, they probably would have uh, laid beams across them and then interlaced the beams with some sticks and some thatch and then covered it over with a thin thing of, of, uh, of, of mud, and then that mud would have hardened and would have formed you know, a, a watertight um, seal on the roof, as well as it would have been structurally sound. I mean, again, like Haiti, like the rooftop would have been a, a great place to go up on and to uh, catch the breeze and, you know, maybe catch up on your, your e- emails. I mean, we've seen people take baths. I mean, that would have been custom in that time. Think about the story of David and he sees Bathsheba and she's on her roof taking a bath. Like for us, that's like, oh my God, that would have been common there. So all kinds of things would have happened up on these roofs. There probably would have been a set of steps going up there. And so these men, they, they see the steps and they, they carry their friend, the paralytic, up the steps onto the roof, and then they begin to peel back the roof. They begin to, uh, to poke and to dig, and finally they, they make a hole. How big of a hole do they make? I don't know, but large enough to lower their friend down into the roof. And when they had made an opening, they, they lay down. It says, then they let down the bed on which the paralytic laid. And so they had some ropes or some way, and they lower it down uh, right in front of, if not on top of Jesus. Now that would have um, certainly elicited all sorts of responses, right? I mean, imagine if you're Simon or Andrew and this is your home. Again, those of you that host our community groups, when our people leave and they leave dirty dishes and toys everywhere, they'd be like, well, at least the roof is still intact, right? Like Jesus showed up and the roof got ripped open. You know, I don't know. But anyway, nevertheless, this is what happened. It, it releases all sorts of responses probably, but, but notice Jesus' response. Verse number five. And when Jesus saw their faith, so he sees the action, right? The destruction, the disruption, the interruption. And he's not bothered by it. Rather, he's pleased by it. He sees their faith. He then says to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now notice, look, he sees their faith, all, four, all five of them, the paralytic as well as the friends. He says when he sees all of their faith, then he responds to their faith collectively with this phrase, son, son, child. Little one, notice your sins are forgiven. Now, nobody said anything about sins. Again, like, like eliciting some response and you could put into categories some responses, some things that you would think people would say in this moment, like Simon or Andrew would have said, hey, what are you doing to my roof? Or even Jesus would have had a whole list of responses. But notice this is a response to this man is your sins are forgiven. Now, nothing has been said about sin. 
There's, there's nothing here that has been said about this man's sins or that he was a sinner or these are the evils that he's done. He doesn't come confessing any sin. He doesn't come asking for any kind of forgiveness. What Jesus does here is Jesus addresses his greatest need. See, his needs seem very obvious. The reason why he's being lowered down in front of Jesus as Jesus has been, you know, healing people for days now, Jesus has been healing uh, people. It would seem obvious what his need was, that his need was that he's lame, he needs to walk. But Jesus doesn't address that need. Rather, Jesus addresses the man's greatest need. He addresses the man's greatest need in order to show us Jesus's primary work. But Jesus hasn't come just so that lame people walk, but Jesus has come to this earth so that sinners may be forgiven. That Jesus's healings, they authenticate his authority, but make no mistake, Jesus has come to peel back the doors of heaven, to purchase a means of forgiveness for sinners. Now listen, you can't just say what Jesus just said. You can't just say your sins are forgiven. Like these people understanding their Old Testament, they, they would have understood that. And so when this hit their ears, it, it raised some curiosity. It raised some questions and we even see it here. I mean, every probably, everybody probably in that room would have understood that only God has the power to absolve sin. Especially look at these scribes. Verse number six, now some of the scribes were sitting there. Now, now we, we talked a few weeks ago about who the scribes were. And what the scribes were, um, imagine this, like people that would have been very well educated and versed in both theology and also law. And Destiny says, hey, what's the problem, right? Theology, they would have been theological lawyers. Well, I, that sounds like a good mix to me. And normally it wouldn't have been a problem here. The only problem is, is that scribes were one of those groups that had been entrusted some authority. Not all authority, but some authority. Like they were free to travel around and to go into synagogues and to make, to, to, to make, uh, um, to, to make certain declarations, to make certain decisions, to, to ter- interpret the scriptures in such a way that would be binding upon people. They would have seen themselves as kind of like the, the guard dogs of the Bible. Like you maybe have met preachers or pastors or people within a church similar to that. They, they got a little education, they read the Bible and now they see themselves as, as the guard dogs. And sometimes that's, that's okay, right? There is such thing as false doctrine, false teaching and we need to protect people from that. But here they're doing it with a, a certain um, bit of being rabid here. I mean, I mean, it's almost like a, like a dog, if you will, that a dog gets uh, chained up to its house, right? You ever seen this with a dog? And he'll mark off kind of his territory as far as his chain will let him go. And anytime you get near, what's he do? You know, and that's kind of what these men are doing with God's law. That's how they see themselves. They're, they're chained to it. And anytime anybody encroaches into the territory that's their territory, they're gonna come back and they're gonna bite, including God himself in the person and work of Jesus. See, they're so arrogant, they can't see their ignorance when it comes to who Jesus is. They're blinded by their own authority and by their own arrogance. And we even see that here. Now, now verse number six, some of the scribes, they're sitting there and they're questioning in the hearts. Now notice here, Mark says they didn't say anything. They didn't say, hey, 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 Jesus, you can't say that. They didn't correct him. They simply are, are questioning in his heart. And this is the question. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins, but God alone can forgive sins. But look at Jesus. Because he is God, he has the ability to perceive what's in man's hearts. He has this ability to to look, and we see that throughout scripture. We see it in like 1 Samuel 16, 7, for the Lord sees, not as man sees, for, the, for man looks on the outward appearances, but God looks at the heart. And that's what Jesus is doing here in this crowd. He's looking into the hearts. That's why you can say to the, the, the five bringing in the paralytic, the four and the paralytic, oh my, what faith. How did he know that? He's looking into their hearts and he's looking now into the hearts of the scribes. And as he does this, he's, he, he, inter, he intercepts their questions. Now listen, they ain't wrong. What they're saying here, they're not wrong in what they're saying. 
The problem is, is they're, again, they're, they're blinded by their, their arrogance. They're blinded by their judgmentalism. They're blinded from who Jesus is in the midst of them. It would be only God can forgive sins. Only God can actually say this. And it would have been blasphemy for just a man to say this. But the problem is, again, their, their faith is so small that they don't realize that God is in their midst. Emmanuel, God is among them. This is no ordinary man. But notice what Jesus does. And immediately, Mark's favorite word, and immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, he said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? And now verse number nine, he's gonna ask them a question, which is easier, to say to this paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. And let's think about that for just a second. Which is easier? It's a complex question. It's a tough scripture, I think, to to interpret even here. It really is. Which is easier? Like, here's the the reality. You can say anything, right? Right? You can say something like this, you know, what they say, your sins, what he says, your, your sins are forgiven. I mean, you can say something and saying it is easier than, than doing it, right? Athletes and sports fans alike, like myself, like we do this, we call it trash talk, right? It's said that last night, one of our players walked into Auburn's uh, locker room before the game and said a bunch of stuff right? He trash talked, said something. And I'm sure Auburn like, well, you can't come into our play. And then like he went out and did something, right? He talked the talk and then he backed it up with his walk, with, his, with the way he played his game. I mean, we do this as well. All humans do this. We call it bragging. We say stuff, but can we actually back it up? And saying, saying your sins are forgiven, it's actually easy because how how do we know? Like that's not something that could be verifiable. That's not something that could be even tested there. But if you say rise and take up your bed, then you got to do it. You got to prove it. I mean, if you say to the man, rise and take up your bed, and the guy goes out of there the same way he came in there. Now, hopefully he's going to go through the door the next time, right? But if he goes out of there on his bed being carried by his four friends, then we know this dude's just talking some talk. He's just talking smack. He doesn't have any authority. He doesn't have any power. They know that he's a phony here. He can't back up, but this is what Jesus is setting up in their hearts. He wants them to see that. He wants to build up that tension and he wants to show them, I'm not just talking the talk here. I have real authority and power that I'm no ordinary man in what I do. And so we see that in verse number 10, but that you may know that the son of man has authority, there's the issue, on earth to forgive sins. What's the extent of my authority? My authority isn't just in teaching, although I'm authoritative in that. We talked about that. Jesus, as he, his authority, he speaks as the author of the Bible, for he is, right? And then we saw his authority over an unclean spirit. He commands it to leave and the spirit departs. And then we see his authority over other various forms of uncleanness like leprosy. We saw that, I think, last week when he healed a leper. And now what's the extent of his authority? Well, look, he says, I have authority to forgive sins here on this earth. But so that you may know this, he says, so that you may be assured that this is the extent of my authority, that I'm no ordinary man, but I've been trusted with authority and I can, I can pardon sinners He said to the paralytic, verse number 11, I say to you now, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately for the 11th time in the book of Mark, immediately he picked up his bed. No stumbling around, no getting his feet from under him. No, and walked it a while. I'm a little unsteady. Somebody get me a cane. He rises up. He walks out, collects his bed, and then look at the response of all of the people. And it says, and they were amazed as you and I would have been amazed as well. And they glorified God. And they said, we've never 
seen or we never saw anything like this. Now, Jesus's authoritative activity proves his divine identity. So he said, that's what we said a few weeks ago and we'll, we'll keep saying it because as long as Mark's in the theme of authority, we'll be in the theme of authority. Jesus's authoritative activity, like we see here, it proves his divine identity, who he is. That, that, that Jesus has authority. That, that's, what, that's what he's doing here. Like, like those entrusted into uh, levels of authority, like, like sometimes you, you get stuff to prove your authority, right? Like, like, like the, the police officers in our room, they, you, get a, you get a badge, right? And we all understand like that, that badge of, of, of authority and what that badge, what that badge means. Um, I, I, had a, I had a friend one time um, and, and we were riding together in the car and we're going down the interstate. And my friend was like, like, I, will, like I am, is whenever um, I begin telling a story, I forget about what I'm actually doing, the activity that I'm engaged in, which is driving. And I just begin to tell the story. And as this guy would tell a story, he would talk faster, but drive slower. And he's driving in the left-hand lane in his you know, oversized Dodge pickup truck. We're going down the interstate and he's in the left lane and he's doing like 53 miles per hour, right? In a 70-ish mile per hour zone. And all of a sudden we're talking, engaging and, a, and another pickup truck pulls alongside of us. And the guy starts gesturing to us in a very unkind way and begins to, to yell at us. And then he pulls around in front of us and gives us a little brake check, you know? Staying on the brakes. But, but my friend was a um, Lexington fireman. And I didn't know this, but they give firemen badges. And so my friend reaches into the, the console, the side console, and he pulls out his fireman's badge. It's in a black leather case and all that. And my friend pulls back around and gets beside the pickup truck. And then he flashes the badge, right? And the dude's attitude immediately changed. He became very apologetic at seeing the, the, the badge there. Ah, you go, you go on, drive 52 miles an hour. It's not bothering me now anymore, right? And I we say, hey, that's a, an abuse of authority. But listen, what Jesus is doing here in his activity is he's flashing his badge. I mean, he has all power and he has all authority because of who he is, his divine identity. His authority is showing us who he is. And even here, he tells them who he is. Notice what Jesus refers to himself back up there um, in verse number 10. But that you may know that the, look at it, the son of man. Now that's a, that's a divine title that we could skip over. Like in fact, in fact, there are divine titles all throughout the New Testament for Jesus. So Jesus is his name, right? Yeshua would have been his name. Uh, and so also there is, he has his name, Jesus, but then there are, there are titles. So you have Jesus Christ, which would have come later. That would have been the title. And that's probably the most frequently used title in all of the New Testament would have been Christ, the anointed one. But that's a title found in the, you know, rooted in the Old Testament. And so the most frequently used um, title for Jesus, number one is Christ. Number two is Lord. So he's Lord, that's who he is. He's Lord overall. But number three, most frequently used title for Jesus, used throughout the New Testament, is this one, Son of Man. And it is the one that Jesus uses the most. If you were to go up to Jesus and you were to ask him, Jesus, who are you? Jesus probably wouldn't have said, I'm the Messiah. He probably wouldn't have said, I'm the Christ. He probably wouldn't have said, I'm, I'm Lord. But what he would have said is, I am the, the Son of Man. That's who I am. Now, Son of Man, oftentimes I think we confuse what he means by Son of Man. Like sometimes we understand, well, Jesus is both son of God and son of man. And so we say, well, son of God refers to his divine nature and son of man refers to his human nature. Sometimes we'll, we'll say things or think that possibly, but both refer to God's divine nature or Jesus's divine nature. The son of man isn't referring to his humanity and to his humanity alone, but rather son of man refers to his divinity. The son of man is found in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter seven. Daniel receives a prophetic vision. And in that vision, he sees what he calls the ancient of days. And the ancient of days is the father. And he sees the, into the, the throne room of God in this event that is to take place in the future. 
And so Daniel's describing it. He said, I saw the ancient of days and he's sitting on a throne. And then I seen one come into the throne room as a man, the son of man. And then what he says he sees is he sees the ancient of days hand over power and authority and dominion and a kingdom to the son of man. And the son of man then takes the throne where he's gonna reign and he's gonna rule forever. And what Daniel saw in Daniel 7 that he describes there is the very event that takes place following Matthew 28. Then in Matthew the 28th chapter, what you have is you have Jesus's ascension. And Matthew just focuses in on what was seen there on this horizontal level. He talks about Jesus as he rises up into the clouds and then he leaves it there. Like, like Matthew doesn't really know what else happens to Jesus on the other side of the clouds. And then Matthew focuses in on the disciples and their reaction. It's like some believed and some doubted. And then, you know, Jesus had these final words. And remember, even his final words, all authority has been given unto me in heaven on earth. And I'm sending you out to preach and proclaim the good news. And lo, I am with you always. So what happens is Jesus passes through the clouds. The next thing that happens is, is Psalm 24, where the psalmist writes, lift up, the psalmist writes and he says, lift up your gates, um, uh, yeah, lift up your heads, O gates, and, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. That's Psalm 24. That's what's happening in Jesus' life. As he ascends, Jesus will utter those very words, open up the gates of heaven, that the King of glory comes in. And all the heaven says, and who is this King of glory? This King of glory is Daniel chapter seven, the son of man. So when Jesus says, see that you may know that the son of man, that's a divine identity of who he is. He is the eternal one who will take the throne where kingdom and dominion will be given over to him to rule over all of the earth. That what will happen next is a coronation of a king. And Jesus is saying here, he's flashing his badge, he's showing his authority, and he's saying, I am that king. And he is that king, church. That's who we sang to today. Where is Jesus right this very moment? He's in heaven. And he's sitting on a throne at the right hand of the ancient of days where he has dominion and he has power. What's he doing right now? Well, he's reigning and ruling by the very word, by his word. He's reigning and ruling, holding the cosmos together. Everything is happening, is happening under his sovereign control. Second, he's interceding for you and I as the church, as we pray in his name. He's taking a place as a mediator. He's interceding with an intercession, not just of words, but an intercession of blood. And thirdly, he's poised to return again. That is who this Jesus is. Now, what this, this text means for us, it, it, it's several things it, it teaches us. There's, I don't know, I could go on for another hour at all of the implications of this text. But let me, let me just focus here with the story in this. That this narrative, it, it teaches us, I think, how we can respond to Jesus. It teaches us how do we respond to the Son of Man with this authority? I think within this story, it can teach us, and we could look at it like this. There are four, there's kind of four main characters, if you will, or four characters in this story. The main character is, is Jesus. He's the main character, right? He's Jesus. He gets that title. And so there is Jesus, and then the, the other three characters or groups of characters, I think they, 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 they can teach us, they can, they can um, illustrate. They can mirror ways that you and I can, can interact or respond to Jesus. The first kind of group of characters that we see is we see this crowd. Remember that he's teaching in Capernaum and there's a, a crowd that's, that's, that's been drawn. There's a, there's a crowd that's come around here. Now listen, drawing a crowd for Jesus isn't necessarily a good thing. It really isn't necessarily a good thing. Like Mark will refer to the crowd 40 some times throughout, like up, up until the 10th chapter of the book of Mark. He'll refer to the crowd, the crowd, the crowd, the crowd. But when Jesus, I mean, when Mark is talking about the crowd, he's not necessarily talking about, uh, talking about a good thing here. The crowds, they're an audience for Jesus's teaching and the object for his compassion. But Mark never talks about the crowds responding to, to faith in Jesus. Remember what Jesus is doing? What's his primary task is to preach. And remember his primary message, the kingdom of God is at hand. And how do you respond to that? You repent and you believe in him. But yet there's never a, a recorded in any of the gospel accounts of people actually doing that in droves. 
people repenting and believing. Not like what we saw being described in the ministry of John the Baptist. Not like what we will see happen on the day of Pentecost when Peter will preach, repent, same message, repent and believe in the gospel. And what happens there? 3,000 people are saved. You never see that in Jesus's ministry. The crowds, they really never, they never fully respond to him um, in that way. And so what the, the crowds, what they represent is they represent those who have an enthusiastic curiosity in Jesus. They, they represent... Um, even though they have the ability, they have the ability to celebrate the miracles of God. We saw that at the end after the, the paralytic walks out, gets up, rises, everybody in the room, including the crowd, they, they celebrate, right? They celebrate what God has done. They celebrate that Jesus has done this. They celebrate the, that the man has been restored, his legs have been restored and he's walking. They are the, the interested, the intrigued, the curious but they are not the converted and the convinced. They have curiosity in what Jesus is doing, but they're not yet the, the converted or the convinced, that the crowds are not the same as the disciples. In fact, throughout Mark, what you'll see is you'll see crowds often obstruct or slow down Jesus from carrying out his mission. They kind of sometimes, uh, they, 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 they get in the way. They're a, they're a little bit of a, of a burden to Jesus. We saw that here in this text today. Crowds, they, they demonstrate the fickleness of the people. The crowds will be there as long as Jesus is meeting their felt needs, as long as their bellies are getting full, as long as he's healing their diseases, as long as he's taking care of their ailments. But when Jesus starts speaking about repent and believe, when Jesus starts talking about the cost of following him, when Jesus starts talking about things like, take up your cross and follow me, guess what they do? They scatter. When Jesus stops meeting their felt needs and goes after their greatest needs, they respond not in faith, but they respond by scattering. And maybe you are like that. Maybe genuinely in your heart, if we could look into your heart, you would see yourself as one of those. You're enthusiastically curious about Jesus and about the things of Jesus, as long as they don't have a cost involved. You're intrigued by Jesus, but maybe you're not fully convinced by Jesus. You like Jesus as long as Jesus is popular and makes you popular. But when there's a significant cost involved, you scatter. When Jesus says hard things to you in and through his word, instead of you meeting that with faith and obedience, you pull back, right? You don't give up everything. You don't take up a cross. You don't follow him. You scatter. And there's this contrast the contrast in the text is the enthusiasm and the curiosity of the crowd, but it's not the same as faith. Jesus never looks at the crowd and says, my, 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 what faith you have, you showed up today. My, 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 what faith you had, you received this bread as I multiplied it to you and you ate it today. It isn't my, 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 my. Look, you celebrated me in this moment today. And what crowds do is they stand and observe. But disciples have faith and follow. There's the contrast. And the, 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 the contrast is, is with the paralytic and his friends. The one that Jesus says, my, 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 what faith. Wow, look at this faith. When he saw their faith, he responded to their faith with action. But the paralytic and his four friends, they represent true faith and genuine faith. A faith that did whatever it takes to get their friend to Jesus. That's the kind of faith that they have. That faith is not just knowledge about Jesus, but faith is, is active, the word active, trust that Jesus is sufficient for one's deepest and most heartfelt needs. The kind of faith that, that gets God's attention, the kind of faith that Jesus responds to is a faith that's not just found in a knowledge of God. Remember what James says about that? Even the demons believe and they shudder, they respond correctly. But what James is doing is he's setting up all through his book a, a contrast of active faith versus passive faith, a faith based upon just knowledge, knowing some things about Jesus and a, and a faith to which you know Jesus that causes you to carry out your knowledge in, in works. That's what James says. See, they had something. See, there's no verbal confession of their faith. There's no profession of what they believe. But these men had something better 
than just a verbal confession. They had an active demonstration. And that's what James is getting at. When James says in his epistle, I'll show you my faith by my works. He's not saying that works somehow have a way to save us. But what he is saying is genuine faith will will be evidenced in works. Our activity, what we do, it demonstrates the validity of our faith. Remember um, Zacchaeus, it's a story in the gospels. Chances are you probably first were introduced to, to, to Zacchaeus in a, in a little ditty, in a little song that maybe some Sunday school teacher, your mom or your grandmother taught me. Remember Zacchaeus, he's the short, crooked tax collector. That's who he is. Jesus went to his house today. And remember at the end of the story of Zacchaeus, when Zacchaeus, when, when he welcomes Jesus into his home and Zacchaeus says, look, when he sees Jesus, he says, look, if I've wronged anybody, I'll pay them back what I owe them and more. You know how Jesus responds to that? Salvation has come into this house today. See, what Zacchaeus didn't just do, he didn't just confess, I believe that you're the son of God or the son of man, or I believe that you're the Christ or I believe that you're the Messiah. No, it was bigger than that. His faith had, had changed him and changed who he was. He had a demonstration of his faith. He had a demonstration of his confession that showed up in, in an activity in an activity that cost him something. Where do you think he's gonna get that money from that he'd been swindling and taking from people? It came out of his pockets now. It wouldn't go come out of Rome's pockets. It came out of his pockets. And that's why Jesus says salvation has come. His faith has been demonstrated in life change. And that's what we see here. These men, they showed their faith by removing every obstacle to get to Jesus. Nothing would get in their way. They were, they were sure, right? They they were sure if they could just get their friend in front of Jesus, then our friend could be helped. They're they're desperate and they go for broke. I love that phrase, they're going for broke. Now here's, here's, here's where it comes to our lives. Like let's just be honest, you and I, we probably would have stopped at the door. We just showed up and we've seen the crowd and we're like, you know, I don't really like crowds anyway. And there's a crowd here and it's obvious that Jesus is busy and Maybe we'll try again sometime, right? And we would have told our friend that. But not these men, they got faith. They got big faith here. I mean, these jokers are so desperate. They're so unwilling to take no for an answer that they tear a hole in a, in a man's roof. Now, I'm not that, like, this is descriptive, not prescriptive, right? Don't go be going tearing holes in roofs. But go for broke sometime. Sometimes we, we're too polite. Sometimes we just pray little prayers. Sometimes we just go for little asks. Sometimes even for those of us in the room who are big sovereignty of God guys, that we get sovereignty of God um, confused with um, Doris Day and Kesara Sarah. Sometimes we say, instead of praying and pressing in and asking and asking more and doing what Jesus will say, he calls it importunity. That means being almost annoying, being almost rude in our prayers. Instead of doing that, we just pray at one time and if God doesn't do it, we go, okay, okay, sarah, sarah. Evidently, God, you don't wanna do it. What God's doing is he's putting us to the test. He said, if you really want it, come and keep asking, keep knocking, keep pursuing me, keep asking and keep coming. Be like these four men. Don't take no for an answer sometimes. Be bold in our faith. Be bold in our prayers. James, again, he will write and he'll say, the effectual fervent prayers of righteous people avails much. That's, that's King James. That's got more oomph in it, the ESV. I just King Jimmy Jewel. The effectual fervent prayers. You know what we miss oftentimes is that fervency piece. We may even be righteous in our living. That's what he means by that, righteous people. That's why sometimes you put out on Facebook, hey, if you're the praying type, I don't ever write that because I want to say, hey, if you're the righteous living type, then pray for me because your prayer has power. And those people, they, they, they on Facebook, but you don't send that on Facebook. You text those people because you're in their lives and you know it. You go, hey, you, you righteous folks, I need you to pray for me. Here's what's going on. And then what we need to do also in our righteousness is meet it with a measure of fervency. Meet it with a measure of fervency. That you and I, I gotta be honest, we probably don't pray like that. We don't live like that. We don't live like that. And let me just, let me just go so bold as to say this. I don't wanna take this narrative too far. 
But I believe probably one of the reasons why Christians continue to be paralyzed by fear and paralyzed in our anxiety and paralyzed in our habitual sins and patterns of sins and paralyzed in our addiction and paralyzed in our unwanted sexual behaviors and paralyzed in our fear of man issues is that we're not bold enough in prayer. And we're not bold enough in eliciting the help from four faithful friends. Hey, help me get to Jesus. Hey, help me do whatever it takes with me to get me in front of and with Jesus. We just pray little, small, mealy mouth prayers. May this story, may this stoke a fire in us to press in and to keep pursuing and keep following Jesus. He is worth it. The last group is the scribes. And the scribes, what they represent is those who stand in judgment and disbelief. They're questioning in their hearts, Mark says. Now, the, the questions, even though they're good questions, they're not, they're not submissive and humble questions, as I said. They're caught up in their arrogance. Like, it's okay to ask questions. Don't, don't think it's wrong for you to ever ask questions. It's okay to ask questions. It's okay to have questions that grip you in your heart. It's just, do you face that with humility or arrogance? Do you ask questions seeking an answer or do you already feel like you know the answer and you're just trying to catch someone in a trap? And see, that's what they're doing. Jesus is looking in their hearts and he knows their questions aren't genuine questions, but really what's, what's behind it is a, is a heart of arrogance, a heart of arrogance here. That Jesus' authority threatened their authority, their precious authority. And so they hold Jesus off. They keep him at arm's length. They, they stand in a place of judgment and a place of, of unbelief and disbelief because they don't want Jesus to threaten what's most precious to them. The same thing is true for us. There are things that are precious to us that we hold on to. And Jesus and his lordship threatens those things. And so we don't wanna bring those things before him. We don't trust him. We wanna keep Jesus at arm's length. And so one of the ways we keep him at arm's length is we, we stand in a place of judgment on him. Like we say things like, Jesus, if you would genuinely be who you are, then work a miracle. I saw a guy say that one time. He's like, if I could just see one miracle, God just do something. I'd believe in him. And I wanted to read the Bible to him and say, that is not true. Because look at even at these scribes, they see God, they see Jesus do a miracle. No ordinary man can do this. No ordinary man can speak a word to a paralytic and him rise up, roll up his mat and walk out the door. And they see it. And yet these are the men that will crucify Jesus. Why do they do that? Because Jesus threatened their little kingdom and threatened their authority and they held on to that which is precious to them, even in the face of miracles. And Jesus' lordship always threatened stuff. The scribes, they stood in judgment and disbelief. Who are you today? I think that, that's the question is, who are we? Jesus, by faith, is in the midst of us and who are we today? Are we the crowd? We're enthusiastically curious about Jesus? Are we like the paralytic who have big audacious faith? Or are we like the scribes who stand in judgment and disbelief? This exchange, it reveals our hearts, but it also reveals Jesus's heart. Not only is it like an x-ray that reveals our hearts, but it reveals Jesus's heart. And look at his heart here in this text. If we could even think back at what Spurgeon said, when I thought God to be hard, I found it easy to sin. See, this affects our sanctification. But when I saw God in the person and the work of Jesus, one so compassionate, one so kind, one so forgiving. Like, what does this text teach us about Jesus? It teaches us this, that he's compassionate and look, and he's willing to forgive sinners who come with faith. And notice though, Jesus is, means of forgiveness. Like here, he'll just declare a pardon. Your sins are forgiven. But we know that Jesus's pardon doesn't stop there. See, Jesus is able to pardon because Jesus is ultimately going to do a work. Remember we said, which is easier to say something or to do a work? Well, Jesus will say something here, but in a few years later, Jesus will do a work. See, people in authority, like 
governors and presidents, they're entrusted on their way out, they're able to give like clemency. They're able to, to pardon convicted felons. Like it's part of our law that I'll just be honest, I don't understand. Nathan, you can come and explain it to me someday. But they have a way that they're able to override the judicial system and they're able to offer a, a powerful presidential pardon that sends sinners free with just a word. They read a brief and they read a letter and then they're moved and they're able to do it. But listen, Jesus, when he pardons sinners, it's not like that. He's not pardoning sinners like a, like a governor or like a president just pardons a convicted felon. But when he pardons sinners, what he's doing is he takes their sins upon his shoulders and takes them to a cross. He, he will back up these words in this declaration. Your sins are forgiven, not with just a word, but with an action on a cross. Jesus will take on his shoulders. He will bear our punishment. Jesus will do our time. He will be condemned and he will take on the death sentence for crimes that he did not commit, but crimes that, like this sinner and all the other sinners who believe and have faith in him, like me and possibly even you as we believe on him. Today, Jesus has, because of his work on the cross, because his body will be broken, his blood will be shed, that Jesus has authority to say to you, the most beautiful words you will ever hear. I say this often, more beautiful than it's publishers clearing house sweepstakes and you've won it. More beautiful than you got the numbers right and you've hit the jackpot. More beautiful than a loved one saying, I love you. More precious than any other thing, Jesus, because of his work, because of your faith, Jesus can say to you, your sins are forgiven. And as you come this morning, let all of your guilt, all of that shame for all of your sins, let it roll off. Let it be swallowed up into his life and into his death for you. Today, those of you that have audacious faith in Jesus, we stand as the forgiven. Let's pray. Jesus. May we be like this group of people as we leave this place, as we, as we finish and as we sing and as we come to this table, may we be like these people in this text and may we say we've never saw anything like this. The forgiveness of a savior, a God who takes on the sins of the world and takes them to the cross and lays down his life because he loves helpless paralytics sinners like us. It brings restoration and renewal. Jesus be praised. In your name we pray. Amen.